Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s when there wasn't a European Super League. Sorry, it's not true. I just, yeah, I'm just annoyed about it. My name's Ash Rose, your host and a guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast. One that does remember when Dennis Bailey scored a hat-trick against Man United on New Year's Day 1992, live on ITV's match. Apparently others don't. I wouldn't know. I keep it alive and kicking. Thank you very much for downloading and joining us as always on this, the podcast where we discuss the decade that changed football forever. And it would be remiss of me. I know this is a 1990s football podcast, but not to mention what is going on in the football world in 2021 and this nonsense of a European Super League. I, I don't think you need me to, to go in the ins and outs of why I think it's wrong. Anyone who's listened to Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher on Monday Night Football, who are excellent, or a plethora of other journalists, or just anyone. any I don't think I've heard anyone say a positive word about why this is a good thing for football. Even James Corden is going on Saturday, whatever his show is, tonight, whatever it's called, and talking about a European Super League to an American audience who, ironically, is the model that they're going with with this league. It, it, nobody wants it. It's ridiculous. I think, and, but the only thing I wanted to touch on, because this is a 1990s football podcast, is the comparison that has been made with the creation of the Premier League in 1992 and how, you know, we gave in to the Fat Cats that time. What's the difference? We've been here before. And for me, and, you know... <laughs> I think it's the right opinion. You may not agree. Let us know on the Twitter feed. But there's a massive difference. When the Premier League was decided on in 1992, you know, the the teams broke away from the old football league to form this new super duper league. Yes, it was about money. There's no getting away from that. It was about making people richer, using the sport to line pockets. I'm not denying that. That is that is almost stone cold fact. That is one of the massive reasons. But football needed it. Football in the decade prior was in the gutter. You know, football had a bad reputation. It it was full of Hillsborough. It was full of Heisel. It had all these tragedies that around it. Football didn't have a good reputation. It took Italia 90 for us to fall in love with football again. And from that, the birth of changing football's image started. And the Premier League was part of that. Yes, it's become this you know, global phenomenon full of a cash cow across the, across the world. But in its essence, it was one of its main reasons for breaking away was to, to change the appearance of football in this country. It wasn't to, to line pockets and make a competition out of nothing. It was to be part of the football pyramid, just a breakaway part of it. There was still promotion and still relegation. There was still competition, it was still connected to the Football League. Yes, the, the money has become the big difference between the, the Premier League and, and the Football League, but it was inputted and implemented as part of the football pyramid. You know, the league championship, the league, the champions of this country are Premier League until 1992 and then their first division. They're the same thing. It, just, it was just rebranded more than a breakaway league. It was, it was a rebrand that the football needed at this time. In 2021 or 2022, whenever this Super League is deciding on being formed, football doesn't need it. If anything, it's the complete opposite. We don't need the brand of 12 rich cat clubs playing in front of fans that have been there for five minutes just because they want to see big teams and then playing each other every other week or every week. 
I like seeing Liverpool versus AC Milan, who, by the way, have only ever played each other twice, and that is in European finals. That's what I want. I don't want to see it every season. Where's the occasion in that? You, when these big teams face off against each other, and I know the latter stages of the Champions League have become a little bit repetitive with the same type teams, but there are often different, you know, they're often against that rule, you know, like a Leicester City in the Premier League. There are often teams that surprise us. There's, that, is the comp- that is football. That is competition. That, that is what happens. You take that away when you've got 12 to 20 teams battling out just to finish in a placing for a trophy that means nothing, for a league that's derided by the rest of football. Um, I don't know where it's going to end up. I don't. I really, really don't. Um, you know, there are reports today that teams are already considering backing down. I, there's still massive part of me that thinks it's a massive bluff from these teams and that they want more control in the Champions League, which we've seen the format being announced. So maybe that goes against my thoughts. I, I just I'm, I just don't know where it's going to go. But the idea that this is us, come, you know, chickens coming to roost because of 1992, it doesn't fly with me. 1992 was a lot of people made a lot of money, but it also made the football that we enjoyed just specifically on this podcast for the start of that decade, it changed it and it changed for the better. Whether we've you know, come out the other side is another argument, but it can't, for me, it can't be compared. And, and connecting that train of thought to what we're talking about to, on today's podcast, I just want to read a quote from you. This is a quote that has gone around uh, Twitter over the last 24 hours and probably everywhere else. And it's, what is a club in any case? Not the building or the directors or the people who are paid to represent it. It's not the television contracts, get-out clauses, marketing departments or executive boxes. It's the noise, the passion, the feeling of belonging to the pride in your city. It's a small boy clambering up a stadium steps for the very first time, gripping his father's hand, gawping at that hallowed stretch of turf beneath him and without being able to do a thing about it, falling in love. And that quote was from Bobby Robson. And today we're on today's show. We are, that, we are dedicating that show to Bobby Robson and that well that wasn't by design that that's nicely fell in my lap using that quote as a kind of a segue into today's show but um, we were talking about it mainly because of a new book which I'll get to in just a second but what Bobby says in that is pretty much worth what I believe I can still remember that moment that I first walked up the steps of Loftus Road and there aren't many because it's not massive ground but and standing there and you, you take a breath in and look at the pitch for the very first time and how massive it is compared to when you see it on the TV. And then, yeah, you are, you are, you're hooked. You're instantly hooked. And OK, Loftus Road wasn't my local team because I grew up in South East London. But my dad is from West London. My dad took me back to West London and still within, you know, the London vicinity. And I, I know local fans is is a thing that has also been thrown a lot about this in, on this Super League as well. And locality is different in 2021. You know, as an editor of Kick magazine, a kids football magazine, we have kids writing from, I don't know, Shrewsbury who support Barcelona. It's a different time. It's a different model. But the ethos of these football clubs are those fans, those, fa- you know, that family effect, my, generations going to the football game, going to the team that their dad supports, their granddad supports, their mum supports, their grandmother supports. My daughters, whether they like it or not, will at some point go to Loftus Road to watch QPR because that's just the way it is. I don't want them watching QPR versus Real Madrid in the Super Duper League. That's, you know, I know QPR won't be anywhere near it and I'm kind of glad I'm not a fan of the big six this week, but the, you know, the, the sentiment is the same. But I thought that was great from Bobby Robson. And I'm going to leave the Super League now because you far well don't need me talking about it when you've had everyone else talking about it. 
over the last 48 hours as well. And let's talk about today's show. So we're talking about Bobby Robson because there's a new book out from our friends at Pitch Publishing called Silver Linings. And it's by David Hartrick, who joins us on the show. And it's dedicated to Bobby's time in charge of the England national team. So obviously it does cover a large portion of the 80s up until Italia 90 when he uh, led England to the World Cup semi-finals before going on to manage PSV. And it's a really interesting chat because I, you know, I admit his 80s stuff I'm not completely co if with because I, I, I'm a child, of, I grew up in the 90s. That's why we do this podcast. So I, I learned a lot on today's show and I'm sure once I've read the book, I will learn lots more about Bobby's reign in, in the 80s covering, you know, year 84, which he didn't qualify, the disasters at, at year 88, hand of God in 86. But we talk a little bit about that. We talk about Italian 90, but we also talk about Bobby's club career, which, as we say on the show, somewhat, dis- not disregarded, but underrated for sure, as he covered PSV, his time in Portugal with Benfica, and sorry, Porto and Sporting Lisbon. And of course, his time at Barcelona and his nurturing of a young Ronaldo. We get into all that, plus quite a little bit chat on Brighton as well, because David's a Brighton fan. We haven't really talked about Brighton at all on this show in, in its five years. So that's quite interesting because the 90s were a hell of a time for the Seagulls. So we get into that. Uh, even chat on Paul Gascoigne as well. There's loads for it to get into. So join me and David Hardrick, as well as the regulars, Joe Young and Matthew Chris on today's Alive and Kicking. No more European Super League. That's talk. Some of the grandfather of football. We all love him. This is an de- episode dedicated to Sir Bobby Robson. You are listening to Alive and Kicking, the original 1990s football podcast. And we're chatting a manager today, which in the 100 odd episodes, 130 something we've done now, I don't think we've done a manager episode, but there is a reason for it, which I will get to in a second. And we'll try not to dwell on the actual football world as well. We'll try and take you away from the European Super League, because I'm sure you'll hear more and more about that day on day. But I'm sure we'll touch it at some point, probably. Anyway, let me introduce my band of merry men. As per usual, joining us, he is a social media mogul, is Middlesbrough's favourite son, Jolino, Joe Young. How you doing, sir? I don't think I'm as, as popular as uh, perhaps Bob Mortimer or, um, you know, Sphere or somebody. But, you know, it might be somewhere down the list. Top five's but, not bad. <laughs> we, we were just talking about, um, we, we're recording this on the day after Leeds and Liverpool and the, and the tumultuous day of Monday and the ESL. And just... I mean, if you don't like football, why would you be listening to this podcast? But what a dynamite bit of telly it was Monday well, Night Football last night. It was it was very good. It was a very good watch. We'll get to we'll maybe chat a little bit of that in a second. Um, but joining us again, as always, he is an author, he is a writer, and he's the presenter of the Brian McClare podcast. Matthew Christ, how are you doing? I wonder if that'll be the only mention of Brian we have. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this this morning. Hello, by the way, everyone. Um, I was thinking how on earth we could shoehorn in Brian into a podcast about Bobby Robson. I don't think it's it's possible. <laughs> so we'll way, see. There's a way you'll find but, it. I'm sure there will. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and you alluded to why we're doing the podcast today, because join us as well for the first time. You may know his voice from the excellent Styles Council podcast about the England team, which I enjoy very much. So he's also an author, a writer, and he's got a new book out, which we'll talk about in a sec. He also loves Orbis and Proset almost, maybe more than me, actually, from, from his Twitter feed. Uh, David Hartrick, how you doing, David? I'm absolutely excellent. Yeah, Orbis, I think, is probably the best thing mankind has ever done, <laughs> if I'm honest. You got one one here? Yeah, hang on. There we go. 
There's me, Obis. Yeah, that was that's without the, video. Yeah, that's the football collection. That's the they they did the Italia ninety one in the football collection. There was two parts to it, wasn't there? Two binders. Yeah, the other one's down there as well. So I mean, with my pro set as well. I'd like to do at some point, and David, I've, I think I sent you before. We'll do a long form podcast on that at some point. So I think yeah. we can talk all day about all this and process and binders. Binders, yeah. kids. What happened to binders? First there. thing out of my house in, a, in the event of a fire, and then I'll go back <laughs> in and grab my daughter. <laughs> fair dude. That is a fair, yeah, that is a fair cop. Right. We'll talk about the book in just a second and we'll do all the plugs and stuff and the reason we're on today and chatting. Uh, but as you're a first timer and we like to get to know our first timers a little bit more. And interestingly enough, I think the first ever Brighton fan we've had on this, which is quite interesting because mm-hmm. the 90s was certainly up and down for Brighton. And um, before we get <sighs> the, the two questions, summarize the 90s if you can, David, in like a, a few sentences for Brighton and Hove Albion? Uh, imagine a bin on fire <laughs> in another bin that was on fire too, basically. It was... Yeah, it, 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 we finished the 80s reasonably strong, but then we didn't go up uh, in a fairly infamous um, playoff final. Um, Neil Warnock's first real managerial success. Notts County went up, and then it was just... It just basically things spiralled out of control. We were run by a couple of crooks who all they wanted to do was sell the ground out from under us. Um, We finished 91st out of 92 league clubs twice, once on goals scored because goals difference wasn't used. It was goals scored. Um, And it it was, we were only saved the second season when I think we had a worse side and I, I think we should have gone down, we were only saved because Doncaster had that absolutely momentous 34 league games, I think they lost, and yeah. 100, it was well over 100 goals they conceded. So that saved us that year. And then, but we ended, we managed to end slightly on a high off the pitch because in 97, the Goldstone ground was sold and gone and we went to Gillingham for the last couple of years. And the 99-2000 season was when we got back to the WIF team. But on the pitch, it was just really a reflection of what was going on off the pitch. It was just, uh, yeah, it was it was a terrible decade. And like it's, it's quite difficult for me to get upset about Brighton these days. You know, like I cannot... When you've lived through that and when Brighton finished 91st twice when you're a teenager, it's very difficult to get upset about, I don't know, losing to Man United at home. <laughs> it's yeah. It really, really is. And it, it's quite an odd scenario because when you, when you live through that, when you go through that and when you support a club through that, and then you're at the other side of that now where we have sort of the greatest team and the greatest squad in our history because... You know, by any metric, you may have players that you like more, but by any metric you want to impose, this is the best ever Brighton side. It's it's just very, very difficult to get upset about anything. You find yourself completely sort of sanguine about stuff. It's it's quite a nice existence, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think I'm just going to jump in there. I think it's something I got frustrated with. I'm a Borough fan. And, you know, we were finished when we finished seventh in the Premier League twice. And there was the famous thing of the guy jumping off the pitch and running, throwing his season ticket at Steve McLaren. Mm. And, you know, where were we in 1986? The lads were locked out of the ground <laughs> playing at Hartlepool and we were in the third division, you know. And, and I think 
and, and ever since then, it's been a it's been a downward, pretty much downward trajectory to the fact where I think Middlesbrough are are at the point now where we were before Brian Robson came to the club, um, except in a different stadium. And I, I think people are, are really far too quick to forget that bad times can be very bad indeed, and mm. times are pretty much fleeting and just forgotten. There's nothing wrong with a bit of table security in a decent cup run. No, and Cheltenham Athletics because I I grew up in South East London, so I, I had a lot of Cheltenham fans around me who you know for years were a mid-table second-tier club. They got to the Premier League and tasted the glory, and then wanted more. Got rid of Kirbishly, and then from literally from that point, they've just gone probably not as you know as you say, David, to the depths of the nine, you know bottom of the third division or whatever. But they've been you know Championship and now they're in League One again, and it's it's like be careful what you wish for. It's always a point in a supporters or a fan base where they they want that little bit more but the grass isn't quite as greener and I think it's difficult like I, I take your point with Brighton now is that you want to progress every season but I suppose there's a certain fans that get frustrated when you're not doing as because there was a long time yeah a home win it's it's a it's a really weird position to be in I guess yeah and I think I get it because they're, they're like my generation were I was divorced from it because we moved up to Huddersfield when I was 11 so I was only getting to go to away games but I obviously have got family who are Brighton fans and still got friends who were going I've got a friend who drove to Gillingham you know both seasons and watched every game there and there were it's almost impossible to sort of (laughs) purvey how bad those few years were because it's not even like it was a completely toxic environment. The The fans were completely united, but the circumstances were just criminal, literally criminal. And to lose the Goldstone ground, which was a very sort of, it, it, it's like it wasn't a storied ground. You know, it wasn't like saying goodbye to the old Wembley. It was more a case of, you know, you get your home taken from you. It, it is incredibly difficult. And it, like nobody looks back at the Goldstone ground and sort of thinks, well, you know, it's it's a huge miss to English football because it wasn't. It wasn't a great place, but it was our place. And when that goes and you can't do anything about it and it's a constant fight and even when Dick Knight took over and Dick Knight, he's technically in charge, but he's still having to fight everyone despite owning the football club. It's just, it's a crazy situation. There's a, a brilliant book on it. Um called Build a Bonfire, which if anyone is interested, I'd suggest they read because it's particularly in the light of what's happening right now. It it shows you how fans can fight back a bit. Um, And yeah, it's just incredible. But I do get it because there's now like two generations, arguably, of fans who didn't go through that. So all they really know is sort of the noughties revival and then the long build up to promotion in the Premier League. So I sort of, I completely get that they're, expectations are completely different to my generations and further back you know I I have a little soft spot for Brian because I used to work really closely literally on a daily basis with a Brighton fan who uh, I don't when I moved on I don't anymore but I I forget how you do you look out for the results and stuff Mm. he was part of the team that put that mosaic together that I think was in the Amex stadium Tim Herbert his name is um, so I always look out for their results. So I'm going to bring Matthew in because you must must be hard as a Man United fan to listen to us moaning about these side of things because this this is your lull pretty much, isn't it? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's difficult because you know me, my, my passions were very much 
80s and 90s United and, and not wanting to sound like somebody that's re- jumped on the bandwagon in the last sort of 24 hours or so. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I could talk, <laughs> it just doesn't affect me now. It really doesn't. I'm not just saying that because um, of what's happened. I mean, I, I just, and, and in some ways I find it slightly hypocritical with what's happening at the minute, you know, football fans suddenly realising that clubs are greedy and will do anything to try and get money. I mean, come on. I mean, where have they been for the last 20 years? I mean, the Champions League hasn't been the Champions League for 25 years. The Premier League would do anything to for a pound. I mean, I just find it a little bit, I know this is to a different level, but I just find it, my sort of passion for United waned when Brian McClare left, obviously. There he is, he But it wasn't far off. I mean, that you know, the end of the 90s and then you had, you had the incident, you know, when the club was up for sale and they were going to sell to... B Sky B and then obviously the Glazers came in and again I don't want to sound like a cliche but I really haven't had that sort of passion so I feel I'm sort of sitting as you know because whenever we do the show I always say to you I don't really recall anything that happened after about 1998 because Mm -hmm. my passion for it really it really did wane so yeah I mean I was just trying to rack my brains there thinking of when I went to what when United and Brighton met in this period that we're talking about, and I do, I think it's they played in the FA Cup final. No, well, no, no. After that, it was was it ninety three FA Cup tie at Old Trafford? Was it? Yeah, was it? I'm not sure whether it was. Was it? A, it might have been League Cup. I thought it yeah, might be League Cup. I do remember. But, yeah, very, there. very, very rare. But so that paths didn't cross really. That was that was the but thing. But see that that eighty three Cup final. A lot of people will say, oh, that was one of the all-time great Brighton sides. But it really wasn't. They bumbled through that run and they were relegated. They got season. relegated that season, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what sort of rubbish team would get to an FA Cup final <laughs> relegated in the same season. Two Cup finals, yeah. Two Cup finals, yeah. I was thinking when, when you were saying before about you're in a position where you need before Brian Robson come in. So we need basically to employ a, a player manager to come in half suit, half kit again. To hold yeah, on. yeah, yeah, yeah. Shorts and yeah. Someone old, maybe James Milner. Is he the kind of elder statesman of football? Maybe he'll be player manager of Borough and he can come in his shirt and tie. And yeah, we need a play, we need a player manager. You know, we just don't get player managers anymore. You know, it's ridiculous. Discussed, and you know, I can't it. believe we've got so far talking about Brighton and not mentioned Desmond Lynham. Yeah, big, you yeah. Know, course, yeah, famous fan. Well. The, the thing about Des is like obviously we we have a couple of famous fans and for a long time. We did cherish Des, but Brighton is quite a liberal place. Obviously, only Green Party uh, MP in the country, et cetera, et cetera. And I think all I will say is Des has gone slightly UKIP. Oh, I see. <laughs> so, oh, okay. so we oh, okay. we much prefer Fat Boy Slim these days. I was going to say, is it Norman? Yeah. yeah. But I mean, those kits, those those Brighton kits, was yeah. the skin kits, were they? Was that like yeah. the I'll tell you something else as well. All, all joking aside, like I have all the skin kits that deal skin if you don't time. know it's that boy slim's record label yeah. by the way just if anybody was, doesn't know it was his record label and basically he put he, he paid over the odds for the sponsorship and that money was unbelievably vital at the time like you wouldn't believe so to be perfectly honest with you he is up there in my affections with Bobby Zamora, Chris Hughton, <laughs> everyone else. You know, if you want to build a Norman statue, you go ahead and do it. But he, and, and as well, I suppose, what must have been a bump is they became quite, and I'm going to say this correctly, cult e kits, as in yeah. people were yeah. buying the people were buying the shirts who had no um, no sort of truck or support of Brighton whatsoever because they were sponsored by Skint Records, then all of a sudden they become cool club wear almost. 
Yeah, it, as I said, it, it it was massive. It was massive because Dick Knight, you know, he saved the club and he is uh, he will go down in the annals of Brighton history as perhaps the most important person who has ever existed in connection with the club. But he didn't have multi-millions to, to plough in. He was having to fund everything. He just loved the club. That's what he did. He just loved the club. So it was it was things like that that actually gave the club a, a sort of working amount of capital to to actually go and not just not just be a football club, but to try and push on and revive themselves. And we had a couple of promotions. You know, we also had a couple of relegations. But it, yeah, it was a long way from the nineties, which was just one like never ending. It was like hearing the same song every Brighton season in the 90s, just the same song on repeat all the time. And it wasn't a good song. I was going to say, not a fat boy one. Not, it wasn't no. like all the brimful of Asher remixes. <laughs> no, right. Well, it was good looking at Brighton there. Um, that's after our favourite questions, though, and we'll get on to the book in a second. Uh, your favourite Brighton player then, David, of that era? Well, we, as you can imagine, we had an awful lot of... Um, I can only describe as crap come through the <laughs> come through yeah. the dressing room, but it really was needs must a lot of seasons. Um, and I think like Kurt, a lot of people would say Kurt Nogan, who was Lee Nogan's brother, who he was all right. He scored goals in a bad side. That was the thing. He had two 20 goal seasons and a lot of people uh, would, would point to him, but some people would say Gary Hart, but he came right at the end of the decade. Um, for me, though, I would go with Jeff Minton, who was he? He started at Spurs, and he he. I think I think he only played once for Spurs, and he scored. And it was actually uh, Gazer and Lineker's farewell game in '92. And two years later, he hadn't been able to get into the side, and we signed him. And it was oh, we got Tottenham midfielder. We've got a Spurs midfielder. He's going to be absolutely brilliant, and. I'm not going to sit here and pretend he was utterly brilliant, but he was just a very hard-working box-to-box midfielder who did a lot for he did a lot for every department of the team. Basically, he he basically played as a six and eight and a ten in the same game. And as I said, there'll be most people listening to this will never have heard of him. I mean, we went, he went in, I think it was 1998, he went to Port Vale on a free because we just couldn't afford to keep him anymore because he deservedly wanted a wage rise because he was far better than us. <laughs> and he just got into the PFA Division Three team of the season. So we were never going to keep hold of him. And his career never really took off after that. But yeah, he, he was the best of that. We had one or two sort of cultish players in that time yeah. but you know like we I think we had Junior McDougal as our top scorer for I think two seasons in the 90s and I think he made more appearances for Harchester United on Dream Team than he did for us <laughs> and that that does show you the sort of levels we yeah. were operating at at the time <laughs> it, it wasn't good just Google Jeff Minton for pictures because you know, like many probably I, I remember the name but I couldn't place the face mm. Um, a lot of his pictures look like he's a member of like M and Eight, the boy band in the nineties. He's got a lot of looks <laughs> going on, but um, yeah, some great kits as well there from Brighton. So yeah, we'll put in, that to feed. In um, early noughties, uh football management games, he was always a really good get because he was dirt cheap 
and he was just a really solid performer. You could bump him up a league and he was absolutely fine. So there'll be a few people listening to this who go, oh, yeah, I remember him from, <laughs> you know, picking him up in Champ Man, etc. Yeah, let's broaden it then. Um, I'm quite interested in this, actually. Your favourite player overall from the 90s, David? I'm going to give a horribly cliched answer that you have heard a million times before, but I was um, 11 years old when Italia 90 was taking place. And I'm a firm believer that the World Cup closest to your 10th birthday will always be your Mm favourite. And I can't tell you how impossibly exciting it was to see Paul Gascoigne play football at that time. And during the 80s, he was good, but he was he was very flaky, is the only way I could describe it. And it was like, back end of 89 and then into 1990, it was like he finally found the key to being consistent. And he was just this figure through the 90s that, like, he, Gazamania was obviously massive and like he had that dreadful Lindisfarne song and a oh, dreadful finally on top of the Pops 1990. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's got the she's gone to number two. And you know, everyone was walking around in a Brooks shell suit yeah. and all I that sort of thing. To. I was a keeper off that it was made by Brooks, so I was allowed to. <laughs> but it was just he was the biggest footballing figure through my nineties. And when like when he went to Lazio, it was just impossibly exciting to see this this English midfielder who was utterly brilliant going to a really brilliant Italian club and the games we could watch on Channel 4 and we had Gazetta Football Italia on a Saturday morning and he was just, it was, it was, he was just utterly brilliant. I think the problem is with Gascoigne is that a lot of people will say Gaz are just because they feel they have to and a lot of people just see the the other side of that is a lot of people just see Gaza as the bloke who became an alcoholic, lost all his money, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But there was there was really, I mean, when he went to Rangers, he was utterly outstanding. I mean, that Rangers side is a podcast in itself. You know, it was it was a phenomenal side. But he was just absolutely loving it. And he was, I would argue that those those Rangers years were at his pomp really because some of the goals he scored just utterly ridiculous. It was he could pick the ball up in a certain area of the pitch and think, oh, may as well score now. It really was that that sort of level. And yeah, I know it's boring. <laughs> I know it's boring, but it's it's, you know it's a we, genuine answer. We haven't had in as, as much as you probably would think um, on this. We get a lot of. I think Ronaldo is. If I counted up all the people, I think Ronaldo is probably mm. Cantona and Beckham. I seem to think. Uh, sorry, uh, Bergkamp people. Bergkamp. Ronaldo, yeah, they're, they're two. Yeah, but Gaz is he's probably in the next level down. I mean, we always have to give the caveat that he played for Middlesbrough and, and Joel gets his like 30 second moan about how rubbish he was in Middlesbrough. But <laughs> so wasn't good. Yeah, know, One good game. Yeah, I know. Mm. So much so he didn't get in our team of the 90s, which I'm still mad at you for. The thing is, at that point, the Middlesbrough and the Everton years, he really was in the grip of the alcoholism, yeah, basically, okay. and he was he was struggling. It was. It was before that, but I mean, the thing it's difficult to sort of get across to people who weren't there and didn't see it was just how different he was in 1990 to anything that had come before. England had, had struggled since their first international in 1887 with creativity, and suddenly we have this player 
who was basically he was he was as good as anything Europe had, and in that World Cup he was he wasn't quite as good as some people would have have you believe, but he was a difference maker. And England hadn't had many difference makers. That was their their big issue. But also, he was the season after. He was absolutely stunning for Spurs. Yeah. I mean, that FA Cup run, he basically yeah. carried them on it himself. Yeah. You know? I always remember in the fifth or fourth or fifth round where I know no disrespect to Rocks, they were I can't remember what division they were in at the time, but I just remember him. Just mm. it was like he was playing on his own against you know he didn't need the rest of the Tottenham side. He just it's funny I was yeah. talking about him the other day in to my in laws and I can't remember the. The reason it may be in the comparison someone made was it the Phil Foden thing? I can't remember, but trying to describe his style of play is so, as you say, no one had seen it, and Twitter, no. I haven't seen it since. Like no. the way he glided, but had so much strength as well. I mean, Matthew, we always throw out the Man United line, don't we, about how he, how it what could have been from at Man United, and David's right. Those years at Rangers, the I mean, Man United arguably didn't need him, but that's the what we always think about. Could he have ever gone on to be even greater? Mm. I mean. It's going over old ground, but what are you? What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean, there's a it's a, a sort of dividing question amongst United fans. I mean, going back to the to where it began, I think United played Newcastle on Boxing Day in about eighty seven, eighty eight, when Gaza was first start. You know, he was about eighteen, mm-hmm. wasn't he? United, and apparently he tore them tore them to, to pieces, and so much so that Ferguson just completely lashed into them and said, "You know, you're letting this guy completely ruin us here." You know, it such was his dominance of the game, and. Um, from that moment on, I think Ferguson wanted to sign him and it was it's well documented that he, he pretty much promised to go to United and then Fergie went on holiday and El Tell came in and uh, offered Gaza a washing machine or a house or something. And uh, <clears throat> Going back his... and asking for more and more and more, that was what it was. Yeah. And then, and then what, what happened is they went down to Tottenham for him to go and um, potentially sign there and him and Five Bellies basically had a drunken riot. And I think it was Scholar was in charge of Tottenham. Irving Scholar, yeah before the sugar business and he got them into the office to say you know no this is not happening you are not going to come in time for this club and behave like that but be- but before he could say anything Gascoigne sort of bounced in the office and said uh, said oh Mr Scholar Mr Scholar we just want to tell you we've had a brilliant time we've had an amazing time can't wait to sign him he said he was so bowled over by his exuberance and his personality and his attitude that he sort of even though he knew he'd been an idiot, he just went, oh yeah, I've actually got to do this, haven't I? And he got all guns blazing, ready to just say, no, we don't want you to get back to Newcastle. And that's just, you know, that's... But, but whether Fergie would have changed him, I'm not sure. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. It might Somebody? Be, yeah, I won't mention who it was. <laughs> <laughs> but we were, you know, it's very simple and easy to say, oh, Fergie, Fergie was a disciplinarian, so he would have he would have changed Gaza and, and then everything would have been all right. I mean, that's not necessarily the case. Fergie got mm. rid of a lot of players that he couldn't work with. I mean, Paul McGrath, I mean, basically Robson was the only one that escaped that cull. In the well, Robson, again, 80s. going back to Gascoigne, as, as Gascoigne said, you know, Robson was the one who could drink 10 pints. He could drink. Yeah. Well, that, that, was Fer- that was Fergie's thing was, you know, if anyone pointed at Robson and said, well, how does he get away with it? Ferguson used to say, well, because he can drink 15 pints and play the next day. Whereas, mm. you know, people like McGrath and Strachan and, whoever else you want to mention in that that famous drinking club obviously couldn't so I mean I do wonder whether you know it could have been a failed experiment it's very easy to say oh yeah Fergie would have uh, would have beaten out of him and got the best out of him I mean I'm sure he would have had great moments but there could there could have been terrible rows and well then he would have, been... have had Robson with his arm around his shoulder as well and obviously you know going back to Borough Robson was a massive fan of him so yeah. 
No, yeah. I mean, the thing we've said a million times about when he went to Borough is that he was badly man-managed, I think. I think Robson let him get away with a lot and he moved him in with a house with Paul Merson and Andy Townsend and they used to take sleeping pills and see if we'd stay up the longest and have conversations and set fire to each other and get drunk all the time. And yeah, I mean, that, worked, that was, definitely wouldn't have happened at United, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, so it, it's fascinating. It's one of those sort of what-if moments that, you know, we, that probably isn't discussed enough, but obviously because we'll never know. But, I mean, what... Like you say, with the, the comparison with the Rangers team, I mean, you if he had signed for United in that, what would have been in 1990? So that would have been just when this whole the, the whole sort of Ferguson experiment was taking off. You had the young kids coming through. You did have you still had people like Hughes, Robson, uh, McClare, then people like Schmeichel, Konchelskis came along, and you know he would have been part of a fantastic team. So yeah, you can only imagine what what would have happened if he had sorted himself out. But it, whether it's he, I think it's worth saying that him and Robson on England duty were an absolute nightmare together. They, it, there was no, it, he wasn't a good, steady, calming influence. Like that, they were, they drunk an enormous amount at Italia ninety, and yeah, that's how Robson ended up missing Italia ninety, wasn't it? Because well, no, that's that's a bit of an urban bed. myth. That's a bit of an urban myth. Basically, what happened was they went out and got uh, absolutely K-lied. And they got back to the room and they had, they, I think they had a fight. And what happened was that one of the, the beds, they, they're all in single beds, ended up coming down on Robson's toe. Yeah. Uh, oh. And it, it, it didn't break it, but it badly bruised it. But he trained the next day and he, he was playing with an injection. The problem was he, he picked up a muscle injury and he, he had to go because of that. But after that incident, like he, I think the thing about Robson and Gazza, I think they were not kindred spirits, but I think there was instead of it being sort of a, a mentor relationship, it was almost like a bit of a sort of old school wind each other up, let's see how far you can go relationship. So you know, like Gazza nearly broke his toe because Robson basically dared him to jump in off a diving board, but to cut, to go the other way and jump into the shallow end. <laughs> uh, well, it's so I'm, I just, I always think when this question comes up, I, I just don't know which way it would have gone. I think there's a fair chance it could have been equally yeah, well, a disaster and, and Fergie might've been bombing him out after a season. Yeah. And you say, Joel, you'd have had Robson's arm around him. I think you would have had Robson's arm around him, guiding him towards the bar. Yeah. Come on, let's have a pint. Well, I mean, just as I said, you know, the business, the business of Borough sort of, I don't, I wouldn't say it 100% proves it, but it certainly tells you that he thought Gascoigne was kind of there for a laugh and the best way to deal with him was to let him be nuts, Mm. you know, but I don't know whether putting him in a house with a reforming alcoholic addict Gambler is the wisest choice that's ever been made. Uh, we'll do a we'll do a Gaza podcast. Although we pretty much started it there, we will do a Gaza episode because <laughs> we actually were on top. We've we've gone half an hour, and I'm going to have to do a new link soon because uh, yeah, we're going to, we're talking about Bobby Robson. So before we uh, go for the break, David, let's start with the book Silver Linings. It's called what? I mean, where did the inspiration first? Before we talk about Bobby and his England time, and then maybe a bit about his club football in the nineties. Where what spurred you to, to to visit this subject for for the book? Um, basically, I just I just love the man. Bobby Robson, for me, is just... Um, he wasn't perfect by any means. He made an awful lot of mistakes, both privately and professionally. But he was a gentleman, and he saw the good in people. And I think he's a figure that we miss in football today. 
And this period, the, the period I wrote about, the book is about his time in charge as England manager, is just an incredible period, um, to be honest with you. The, the eight years you've got the when he, he takes over and he drops Keegan and like there's a massive media storm, doesn't qualify for Euro 84 and offers his resignation. Then you get Mexico 86 and Diego, Euro 88, massive failure. The high of Italia 90, in the background, football's just at war with itself. You've got the tragedies throughout the 80s. It was just it's a remarkable time. So it's it's really, it's the story of Bobby Robson's time in charge of England, but also what happened to English football in that decade and how that leads directly into the 90s, which is where the 80s you can genuinely see as, as a pretty dark cloud. And the 90s, the early 90s, is when that cloud starts to clear. A lot of people talk about 89 as being, you know, that that Arsenal-Liverpool game as being the moment the Premier League began to form in a few people's minds because they could see the value in the product again. But 1990, that World Cup was where those people realised that it might be able to save itself from itself because, I mean, it was a war zone. It was an absolute war zone at times, and particularly England games. I mean, Euro 88 was a failure on and off the pitch. So, yeah, so it's a it's pretty dense book. It's not all sweetness and light, but, uh, yeah, it ends on a perhaps one of the highest highs we've had in English football, to be fair. Brilliant. Well, we'll talk more about Bobby Robson and our own sort of memories and highs and lows from that period, as well as stuff at Barcelona and PSV after this. Sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking. The 90s Football Podcast. This is Alive and Kicking, and we are talking Bobby Robson. Thanks to David's brand new book, as we just plugged before the break there. Um, that's I thought we'd now just chat about Bobby, actually. I think because I wanted to ask firstly, Joel and Matthew. I mean, you're if you when I say Bobby Robson, what are your first thoughts and um, hopefully 90s but they don't have to be but what what do you first think it's for me well for me personally like as David mentioned earlier in the show like my first world cup was Italian 90 that's what I remember and I'm my first memories of Bobby Robson were the man in charge of that team that I was supporting and I've got I you know, fell in love with that team I fell in love with football so he was the gatekeeper to my love he was the man on the sidelines he looked like a granddad he looks like you know he became that kind of guy that you just you know I, at that point I had no clue of all the troubles that England had in previous competitions and all the what was going on in the background with him moving to PSV and the rows he was having in the FA I learned that obviously subsequently but that's my kind of first abiding memory of Bobby and that man on the sidelines um, Joe, how about you? Let's come to you first. What, what, what is your? Where's Bobby Robson? What does instant thoughts come to you? I mean, the first thing that I did think about when you said you were going to do this was he still more than Taylor, certainly more than Venables, more than any other England manager. I think got it worse in the neck from the tabloids from any of them than any of them. I think, and it, it always seemed that such a, even as a kid, I kind of realised that he was getting it very badly and didn't, and nobody else got it that bad later on to the fact where, you know, in the name of Allah, Go was the famous, was that on the back page of the sun, I think? Um, on page, I think, was it? Yeah. Was it today called him, today called him a traitor? Yeah. He sued them for that. And, successfully. Yeah, yeah. and it was the, the mirror 
after Euro 88, they did In the Name of God Go. And then after yeah. the friendly, um, the Saudi Arabia friendly, it was In the Name of Allah Go. But the I, I go into it in the book, but the coverage after that Saudi Arabia friendly is, I mean, like reading reading through it when I was researching, it's absolutely jaw-dropping. Um, and yeah. it is... I mean, if you if you did that now, uh, you just could you couldn't get away with it. You just could not. Get I mean, away it'd with be it. a different sort of. I mean, we are in a different age now, where newspapers newspapers don't particularly lead the agenda as much as they did, and they don't influence people as much as they did. Certainly, in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, and there would be a backlash online that everybody and. It's that same thing with social media across the board. You know, for good and for bad, you can find people who you can you can find your tribe. <laughs> and so that was the first thing that that was the first thing that kind of struck me is that I just remember all those headlines, and he always seemed to be getting pilloried, and it was so at odds with what an obviously good, hardworking, nice man he was. And it was like when they called him a traitor when he when it was announced that he was going to um, up after the England job, and even I'd have only been thirteen or fourteen or something. And even then, I remember thinking, "Well, he's leaving that job, so he's going to another job. So what's the, what's the thing? He was always going. I mean, that was always the thing. Was am I right in remembering that? Or am I misremembering that? No, no, that was that was absolutely true. He was part of the problem was that in 1984, the Sun had decided that Brian Clough should should have taken over as they had wanted for. I mean, literally about a decade at that point. So they were at a Wales game. Uh, Wales versus England. It was a dreadful game, but they were giving out um, Robson out cloth in badges for England fans to wear, <laughs> and there was a bit of a pushback to that. But by 1988, that, sorry, I'm just going to. Whose idea would that have been? Would that have been a Kelvin McKenzie, or would that have been like the Sports uh, Department? Or yeah, it was. The problem was then after '84, the tabloid war really kicks into gear, and mm. at the first. Uh, <laughs> At first, they're fighting it on the front pages. So you have all the, you know, for instance, you have all the Elton John stuff in the Sun that he ended up successfully suing him for, and various other things. But then they realised that kicking the England manager after 1986 uh, really sold papers and got traction. And they would, you know, they would get generate money by setting up premium rate phone lines for uh, people to phone in and give their views on Bobby Robson um, and. It, it was pretty extraordinary. They then transferred it to the front pages when he got um, an, an affair came to light that he had to he had to own up to. But at the same time, it was sort of completely sensationalised and overblown. But then the Mirror found another woman who said she was publishing a book because she had had some torrid affair. And you'll be unsurprised to know that that book has never come into publication. <laughs> and it was just all a massive fabrication. And by the after that Saudi Arabia friendly in eighty eight, like eighty eight, eighty nine, and ninety, it is it's unbelievable the coverage. And he was called the word traitor was a big trigger for him, and that's why he, he sued today because he was he he loved the England job, you know. It, like you can't underestimate how loved it. He went through all of this, and when Graham Taylor was struggling, he offered to come back if the FA were going to get rid of him. He he believed it was the biggest job in world football. And before he went to Italia 90, there's an infamous press conference where everything just came to a head, and the, the press coverage had been extraordinary. They'd gone back to this woman who'd just 
told him a pack of lies and now it was her husband saying that she kept a tell-all diary and he was going to publish that and again you'll be unsurprised to know <laughs> it never appeared anywhere and he just had enough because his personal life was affected all he wanted to do was work that's all he wanted to do was just work and the biggest single driver of this was that not only was there a circulation war, the tabloids, by Kelvin McKenzie's own admission, they were not used to not getting their way. They prided mm. themselves on making and breaking people's careers in entertainment, in politics, in every aspect. And they'd gone after Robson in 84 and not gotten it, got him. They'd gone after him in 85 and not got him. They'd gone after him in 88, 89, and now going into 90 and still not got their man. And then when he announced he was leaving on his own terms, it was just basically, it was just all out war because he, he was, I mean, he was the first person to dig in and say, no, I'm not going. I mean, and as well, a man taking a job after he's already, it's already been announced that he's leaving a job. This isn't Don Revy, <laughs> is it? This no. this isn't that situation where and, somebody actually did leave the England job purely money. It, it, it's and it's worth saying his contract was running going to run till 1992, and he wanted mm. to honour it. He didn't want to go, but before the World Cup, he sat down with with Bert Millerchip and had an honest conversation and said, "Look, are you gonna? Am I going to get the push after the World Cup, regardless?" And he said, "Yeah." And it was only then that he went and spoke to PSV, who had been made it known they were interested in him. So he'd done everything the right way, but then they'd called for his head for like mm. you know six years, and then called him a traitor for going. It, well, then that's can you how imagine if, it was. if England had won the World Cup, then they would have been being for FA blood or begging him to stay or completely changing their tune about that. So it, it's like, and this is a rubbish comparison, but it's like, it's like if you lose a task on The Apprentice, you know, you're always going to get picked apart for something, no matter what you did, you know, even if you finished one penny behind what it is, that's what it is. They would just change their tune and what they were doing in, in terms of that. But that, that was always the thing that stuck out for me is, it, is even as a kid, it always seemed like a very reasonable, very... You know, like you said earlier, only made mistakes, but just a reasonable, hardworking, and actually the probably the best English manager, as was proven later on, as for the jobs that he went to. Um, you know, in demand the world over, but not in England. Matthew, um, you, you've been quite quiet there. Um, would you similar say that that was kind of when we mentioned we were going to do this show and we'd have David on? Would, were those sort of memories coming back to you? What are your thoughts on or memories? Well, of as, as soon as David said. But the World Cup nearest your tenth birthday. Obviously, I was ten in nineteen eighty six. So I mean, that's exactly true for me. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, you mentioned Bobby Robson to me, and I can just picture him on the sidelines in Mexico in that sort of white polo shirt and 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 that kind of era. But I mean, I think it's worth putting a bit of context into it. You know, don't forget he'd taken Ipswich to two second place finishes in in his time there. He'd won the FA Cup in seventy eight. He'd won the UEFA Cup. So I mean, this was a a really top class manager with what he had to work with. And that's something that I was, I'm always amazed with when he gets, he got all that stick. Because again, when you're, you're 10 years of age or whatever, you, you, you just don't really think, why is he getting all this stick? But his record as an England manager is pretty damn good as well. I mean, did he not, he only lost one qualification game or something. And then he, and then that 88, uh, the qualifiers for the 88 tournament, he only dropped 
dropped points in one game, I think. Is that correct? Mm. You only had one goal scored against them, didn't I? Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know it went horribly wrong. I know it went horribly wrong in the finals. And I'm you know, obviously watching it. It was it was a disaster. But I mean, it was that was very much a blip in a period of, in terms of form and results and what you'd call win percentage today. I mean, his record's probably as, as good as any England manager. That's what made it such a shock that... Um, that he got the stick that he did looking back in hindsight, because at the time you just think, oh, I mean, I was going to ask, I mean, is it, was it purely quite often you get these, the tablers go for someone if they upset them or they piss them off or what have you. But I mean, it seems with Bobby Robson, it was purely, they just were out to get him. Like you say, so there was no, nothing's yeah. come to light that he, he ever knocked them back or. No, you know. I, it, the long and short of it was they, Robson was a company man. So even when he was a player, you know, if you go right back to, um, I forget which World Cup it was, but the FA used Robson to scout their opponents. He was still a player at the time. Um, and he was he was on training courses. Um, I think it was his second year as a professional footballer for coaching because Walter Winterbottom saw something in him and actually Don Howe as well and was taking them aside and he really wanted to push them. And he was helping out all the way through. In He took out, when Greenwood got the England job, he reinstated the B team and Robson took over that. He was a real company man. He was he was groomed for the job. And it was because of Reevee. Because Reevee had completely blown apart the system, basically, and left in the manner he did, they wanted someone who was a bit of an advocate for the FA rather than somebody who was just going to battle against them. So there was nobody else really in the running, but the tabloids wanted Clough. And it, the only reason they wanted Clough, it was nothing to do with football. It was because he was box office. That it's was the copy. thing. Yeah, yeah he was box office. And the problem was the FA were, were petrified of him. And by the time Robson's taken over in 82, Clough is already a sort of an agitator, but like by 84, 85, when the Sun were really pushing for him to take over. I mean, Clough was just using like interviews after Forest games to slag the English FA off. <laughs> and it wasn't until the late 80s that he turned on Robson as well and was fairly pointed towards Robson. But he was never, ever going to get get the chance or get the role. And you're exactly right. Robson was a really underrated manager because a lot of people just... A lot of people sort of skip over the time at Ipswich. It's it's absolutely remarkable. I mean, he made a in that entire time at Ipswich as well. He made a profit on players. I think he only bought fourteen players in his entire time there, and he bought through um, a load of youth players like Terry Butcher, um, who went on sub staggering careers really. And when you look through that Ipswich team, it's absolutely mad because it's just full of people who've made who like 500 appearances for yeah. the club in the same time. It's like they picked the same nine players for eight years consistently. It's incredible. And a player who became whose name became uh, slang for ecstasy tablets. So you know, it's, you know. <laughs> well, let's, let's quickly talk about his club career as well, like post ninety, and then maybe we'll go back to Taylor ninety towards the end, like. He, it's a very eclectic career. It's something that I always I'm fascinated with that he didn't. Like he went to PSV and we didn't see him in, in, back in England until literally the end of the decade when he went, went back to Newcastle. He went to PSV. He went to Sporting Lisbon. Uh, then he went to Porto and obviously Barcelona. Back to PSV. 
what what do you remember and what, what are the headlines for you, David, in, in terms of that period of Bobby Robson? Obviously, we always know about the cut winners cut win uh, with Ronaldo, with a very young Ronaldo. He was, he's kind of the, you know, the grandfather to Ronaldo. You really, he's, he's cited on many occasions as, as, as one of the guys that really brought Ronaldo to the forefront of European football. Uh, yeah, he was European manager of the year in 97. I still think he gets underrated because he did such a good job at those levels where we didn't see it. What, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's something to that because now he was tucked away on sports night, basically, rather than than appearing on, you know, the the usual. And he went to PSV and he did a brilliant job, couple of titles. Um, he had Romario, which helped. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then he went to he went to Sporting because he wanted to go some. He basically wanted to go somewhere sunny, um, and Sporting were in a dreadful uh, moment they're, they're, <laughs> the bloke who owned it was just an absolute nutcase and he still took them to third and walked into the Porto job and he was absolutely brilliant with Porto again a couple of titles and a cup and they were they were a phenomenal side that Porto side and Barcelona had wanted him since the 80s Barcelona came to him and I think it was I think it was, it was just before they went for Venables actually because it was Robson that recommended Venables to them so they'd wanted him for a long time. And when he went there, again, he, he was he was pretty good. But the Barcelona model being what it is, he then got moved upstairs for a season, as he did at PSV, funnily enough. Because there was a weird thing about Bobby Robson in that a lot of people just wanted him in charge of everything instead of just managing the, the first team. But yeah, he was brilliant through that decade. And what's important to know is uh, 1992... He has to have a section of his bowel removed because he's it's cancerous, and he gets through it and just keeps working. And then 1995, he has the, um, went into the doctors with a bit of a sinus problem. He was struggling to clear his sinuses, and they found malignant melanoma, and he had had to have a, a nine and a half hour operation. And after that point, he had to have a plastic plate in the top of his mouth uh, for the rest of his life. And again he just carried on working and that is just phenomenal absolutely phenomenal but it's also a mark of the man because that's like even with his time with England and everywhere else and right up until the end when he was sort of still helping out the Republic of Ireland when he was his his health was in a terrible state it was just always about the work he just loved working he 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 genuinely passionately loved football you couldn't get him away from you know you couldn't walk him through a park without him stopping to watch like six lads play a game of cuppies <laughs> or something he he really did just love it and that period in the 90s i'm sort of i'm really glad he had that because obviously he's a legend at psv and everybody absolutely loves him he's you know at Porto, he's a he's a bit of a god there, and at Barcelona, he's just really, really well remembered because of the the relationships he fostered, and you know, winning a couple of trophies as well goes a long way. Can we mention one relationship he fostered with his uh, translator? Yeah, well, if you know Bobby Robson, know Jose Mourinho, arguably. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's where did where, did he come in at Sporting? Was it Mourinho? Or was he it? Translator. Yeah. So, both Porting and uh, Porting. There's a new club I've just invented. Sporting and Porto, and then uh, he took him to Barcelona as well as a as a coach. Um, mm, yeah, so, you know what an influence to have. You know, they, we've all seen those images of you know Pep and Jose in those Barcelona mm. days. 
you know, young him as a translator, him as a player. It's it's kind of it's it's almost fairy tale stuff that Robson is the man that laid the foundations for a, a complete new generation of football. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say, I mean, yesterday we're talking the day after Mourinho's been fired from Tottenham. And there was a lot of talk on Sky saying, well, I think that's it. I think that's probably it. I think he won't be back in the Premier League. But I think if he's going to go to one club in the Premier League, and it pains me to say it, it'll be Newcastle United. Newcastle United, yeah. And I think part of that is because of Robson. And -hmm. I think if there's one club that something can be done with, that there is the potential to do something enormous with, and we've probably said this since the Keegan era, and, and, and then later on maybe Robson, but not so much as Keegan, it is Newcastle United because they will... Uh, to quote Keegan, love it. <laughs> I think following in his footsteps, I think that I think nice. all, yeah. I think Mourinho is. We think he's quite hard faced and everything. I think he is quite sentimental and everything. And I think he would. I think that would be the one that would interest him. I don't think anywhere else would, but I think Newcastle would possibly. Yeah. It's a good shout. It's a good shout, uh, Matthew. Do you think like have we discussed there? You look at his trophy hall. I mean, I've got an eleven of players that he managed in that sort of period post England, and it's like. Shea Given, Albert Ferrero, Fernando Couto, Pinto, Popescu, Figo, Guardiola, Stoichkov, Shearer, Romano, Ronaldo. It's it's a who's who of 90s football. Do you think somewhat he never quite gets the credit when we talk about the great managers of European football? Do you think Bobby sometimes doesn't get the, the credit he deserves? I don't think there's sometimes about it. I think he definitely doesn't get the credit he deserves. I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think it's because we didn't see it. And yeah. we're very... You know how I, I'm very passionate about things that happened years ago, hence why we're on this podcast. But, you know, so it goes it goes back to the old thing of, you know, oh, that didn't happen and all that, you know, but like when people refer to the old first division and, you know, oh, well, the, that's the first time that so-and-so have won at Anfield or whatever. And you think, well, hang on a minute. I remember them winning there in 86 or whatever. Oh, yeah, well. And I think that is, that's where, unfortunately, Bobby Robson, uh, the, the bracket he finds himself in. I mean, I was thinking about it this morning. I mean, imagine now an English coach go into those countries. I mean, it's slightly different now in terms of superpowers, but, you know, imagine an English coach going to three countries in Europe and winning successfully, not just winning a title, winning back-to-back titles and, and cups and, you know, a really consistent record. I mean, they would be the prize possessor. I mean, the only person that's done that in recent times is Steve McLaren. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, it's, um, I mean, we can't, there's not even an English manager that can win the Premier League. So. Hasn't. So, yeah. So I, I, I do think there's, you know, I mean, you can't argue with this record and we're not certainly not arguing with it. But it, yeah, I think if you did do the old straw poll in a pub with people under the age of about 40, probably less, they would they would probably. And, and even we're probably guilty of it as well. I mean, you said, oh, we're going to be talking about Bobby Robson. The first thing that comes to mind is Mexico 86 yeah, and a God, all that, which is still a huge achievement, but it's probably not. His biggest achievement by any any stretch of the imagination is it. So we all we're all guilty of it. We all judge him by those England games, good and bad. Um, but yeah, the, the I've, you can you imagine the, the equivalent of an English manager being that that influential and that successful in, on the continent now would be. And I think what's key there is you, you know you've you said successful there, but I think influential mm-hmm. probably a, is probably a. a, a a word that isn't used probably as much as it should in terms of, you know, we, we tend to kind of eulogise the Wenger way of doing things here. But Robson was just as um, revolutionary in his own way, wasn't he, David? I mean... Yeah, he... The, the thing that Bobby had, without getting too philosophical on it, but 
he grew up in a small mining town and it, it's no cliche to say it's one of those things where everybody knows everybody and he, he learned from like a really young age the value of relationships so he went the reason he went to fulham down in london when he had like six professional contracts including uh, newcastle middlesbrough various others was because fulham's manager drove all the way up to newcastle to see him and didn't sort of he gave him the sell on it but he didn't like give him a really hard sell and push him he you know he drove away and said i really hope you sign for us and for bobby that was like absolutely huge and throughout his career that value of relationships is the things that when you read people like um pep guardiola you know he says that's what he taught him that not only do you need to have a relationship with your players it is also all right to have different relationships with different players you know one of the things i think Mourinho it would be fair to say has never really quite mastered to the same degree is that he understands how to have a relationship with a certain group of players, but it's usually at the expense of another group of players. Whereas, you know, Guardiola talks about that Barcelona side and what Robson did, because they had a load of really sort of disparate personalities in that side about varying your approach and being different with different people and understanding who needs an arm around them and who needs a bit of a nudge to get the best out of them. And yeah, he tactically as well, he's, he's slightly underrated because it was his decision to, to switch to the sweeper system in 1990. I was just about to say that. I, I saw a quote today that said, like, do people think I'm stupid? I wasn't going to let Van Basten just tear holes in us. No. Like, it's the plan. There's, there's in like, so for example, in 1986, they they had um they started really badly in the group stage, the first two games, and Terry Fennick in his autobiography talks about this great big I am Spartacus moment where they have a team meeting and Fennick stands up and says we've got to sort it out, and everyone agrees with him. It, it's it's absolute rubbish, really. Robson called <laughs> the team meeting and he wanted a sort of clear the air hour basically right say everything you've got to say now and what he was a master at is asking for people's opinion and views and making them feel like the things they were suggesting weren't things he was going to do anyway so one of the reasons the myths built around the sweep system in 1990 is because he got all the players on board with it not because it was their idea if you look at the way he structured that squad, he, he structured the squad so that he had a sweeper there. So, yeah, he, he was underrated. And then when he he went to PSV and Sporting Porto and Barca, he he varied what he was doing. You know, he 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 played he played a sort of version of a four two three one, which had been quite an early, you know, quite an early version. He uh, he played a front three. A fair few times he also worked out systems that basically the whole team was just a platform to give the ball to Ronaldo or Romario. <laughs> so he wasn't, you know, like I, I, when I was researching this, I saw somebody write an incredibly cruel appraisal saying he was a four-four-two merchant, and it's like, well, no, that that that's absolute rubbish. Even your most basic knowledge of Bobby Robson's England career tells you that isn't true. I mean, that's. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he didn't play with he didn't play with wingers for the for you know for years with England. It was only the sort of the emergence of Chamberlain and Barnes that saw him play with wingers, and even then, it was only one. So you had a sort of a, a lopsided like four four three one winger, and then a two mm. anyway. So it was, 
yeah, he went through a fair few systems, tried a fair few things, and he 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 wasn't afraid of using a player outside of their club role either. You know, if he felt he could get a bit more or something different for them from them, he would he would do that. So yeah, he was he. I wouldn't say he was sort of a massive innovator. You know, he wasn't like some tactical genius like Pep, but he was by no means uh, a, a dummy. You know, he he understood football and he understood the game. And that was because he was just obsessed. He, he genuinely was just in love with football at every level. And I think that because that comes across so much, that's why it's very, very difficult not to just, you know, love the man, really. I just want to ask you a very quick question because I saw the meme doing the rounds quite a lot that you've... The- probably seeing the one about seeing the pitch and falling in love. Is that a real quote? Yes, it is, yeah. Ah! yeah. <laughs> because uh, they normally are these that things. Quote in my intro, so I hope it's a real quote, because I've used that quote. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a real quote. And uh, like when he was a kid, all he ever did was play football, and he fell in love with Newcastle. Um, Melbourne, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, fell in love with Newcastle United. And he would never stop being grateful for all the things he was managed to do because all he ever wanted to do was play for England. And then all he ever wanted to do was go to a World Cup and he got to do it. And he never, he never stopped being grateful for that for the rest of his life. And he felt like when he was England manager, he felt like he almost had to repay um, England for, for allowing him to do that. And yeah, his, his, that quote is real. His philosophy is real. He just, he just genuinely adored the game. If you, if you talk to his wife or his family, they'd tell you the exact same. He was obsessed. Not in a not in a Bielsa, I'm going to watch 40 videos over the weekend, <laughs> um, you know, type of obsessed. But he just, he genuinely couldn't go for a walk without stopping to watch three lads play in a park. It was just, it was just how he was built. He just loved it. There's two great clips that if you search hard enough on Twitter and usually using the term Sid Lambert, a friend of the show, um, you've probably seen him. There's one of him and Gary Lineker. I think Gary does an interview with him for BBC years later and they talk about almost winning the World Cup and there's this moment where Bobby just goes, we almost done it. We almost had it, son. And it's like, it makes... A whisker away. Yeah, a whisker. Oh, it's just, it gets you lump in the throat for anyone. And I imagine listening to this show because it's a 90s football podcast, he was there at that moment. Like, we were, we were almost there. And for, for him to still be thinking about it all those years later showed you how much it meant. Well, they that that was a it was a football focus thing actually i mentioned it in the book because they're talking about it and he says he he basically thinks about it every day and they go inside Mm. and he can't help but talk about the penalties and he he just says like they put every single one in the corner gary every single one of them and all (laughs) lineker can just basically smiles back and just says bloody germans yeah yeah yeah. and the other clip I wanted to mention as well is him winning the I think it's a um, lifetime achievement award at the sports personality of the year if you I don't mm. know how, what year it would have been obviously a few years before his death and it's just the you know the adulation there is in that room I know the sports personality of the year is a little bit like because everyone there is a little bit over the top but you can see it's genuine for Bobby and I think You'll, you'll struggle to find a figure of any decade, let alone the 90s that we're talking about, that is so revered in a way that Bobby Robson was. He, he is kind, somehow the grandfather of football, and which is why I can't read, wait to read the book, David, because I just, to get that insight that I haven't probably seen before, I'm really interested in this. It, it, it's, it's just a great story, which is why I wanted to do this, this show as well. So I think... I think we pretty much. I mean, I was going to finish. We need to talk about Newcastle, really, if we're going to talk about the 90s. We're moving into the next decade slightly because he took over at Newcastle in September of 99. 
um, prior to the... Uh, I mean, the thing that I always remember, and I, I was living not in Newcastle, but certainly in the North East at the time, and, and the fact that every Newcastle fan just told you that the whole place was lifted because it was chalk and cheese, and it was, it was wasn't it? I'm getting my timeline right. Take over from Hullet? Yeah. Yeah, September yeah. 1999, he took over there. And what a turnaround that had been because, uh, you know, obviously he dropped Keegan and he, <laughs> he went back to he went back to to basically scout Keegan, see he was, how he was doing, even though Keegan said he'd never play for England again. And as he took his place in the span stands, you know, he was spat at by Newcastle fans. There was beer thrown at him. He was booed oh, wow. throughout the game. So, yeah, he, he felt like he had unfinished business with Newcastle and that's why he went back there. And to be fair, his first couple of seasons there were fairly phenomenal. Well, Shearer was Shearer was on his way out of the club. I mean, that isn't a, an over-egging of the pudding. And she, if Hullet had stayed, Shearer was gone. Now, obviously, mm. it's never going to happen. They were never going to choose Ruth Hullet over Alan Shearer. But, I mean, he was he was gone and that was it. So, it's, it's you know, he, he kind of saved Shearer for that club and then everything else he did. And everybody just said the place, it was like it had been rained on for quite some time since sort of, Keegan left and then Robson came and they finally saw a bit of sunlight again. Mm. It's almost like they need that kind of figure again. And as we said earlier, maybe it's Jose unbelievably and we'll come not quite full circle, but a kind of nice romantic tint to, uh, to write with Jose Romino's career. Well, you know, they've had Benitez before now. True. Yeah, very true. Yeah. You know. um, well, but before we go, David, just plug the book one more time. Um, usual places is from Pitch Publishing, of course, big friends of the show. So just tell us when, when it's out and where we can get it. Uh, it's out on Monday. I'm not sure when this is going out, but April 26th. Um, but if you order from Waterstones, you get it straight away, apparently. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, it's called Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England. And yeah, hope you enjoy it. Good stuff. And where can people get in touch with you on, on the social if they want to chat? Anything Brighton or Bobby? I'm at David Hartrick, but you'll find it. I have to cover Huddersfield Town as a as a day job, so you'll find a disproportionate amount of Huddersfield Town chat as well. Who somehow have been our bogey QPR's bogey team this year? We've both the games against them. We've really not turned up. At, Can we not talk about uh, QPR? Please? I was going to leave that, but you know, we'll, we'll talk about the win. You know, the the AK nineties derby win. Yeah. It's twice, isn't it, this season? Yeah, double. Ten men. We only need ten men. Cheers for that, Joe. Uh, <sighs> Typical Bora. Typical Borough. Where can they find you on the social, Matthew? And what can we expect on the next Brian McClare episode? Go on, plug it. Um, the next Brian McClare episode, uh, we've got John Cohoon, former Celtic Hearts um, player, big friend of Chockeys. Uh, we've had we've had Pat Nevin on before. We had uh, Ray Mead from Ocean Colour Scene on last week. Um, we've had quite a few people on. So, you know, I don't like to plug my other show on this show because you know <laughs> you know where my my loyalties lie. Um, yeah. And you've got McClare. He's got McClare Tourette's. Here we go. <laughs> Can I have a pint of McClare? <laughs> and Joe, if people want to talk about Top of the Pops in the 90s, because we've reached that decade now, where can people Yeah, yeah. Them? Well, we're, at, we're nearly at the end. We're nearly going into 91, which means we've got weeks of bloody, um, oh God, Brian Adams. Yeah, oh God, it will be, won't it? Yeah. Yeah, it, well, it's 16 bit. weeks, so we'll yeah. get it for eight weeks. Yeah, which is, you know. Um, yeah, uh, Villa Rice is number one at the moment, so that's end of 1990. So, yeah, um, it's Joel's tweet. One word, uh, 
Come and say hello. It's pictures of the cat. Yesterday, although there's been two days of football chat on there. I know. I was surprised how much football chat that came out of your talk. Two days of football chat from no, me. No uh, word of Babylon Zoo or anything. It's, uh, it's, not it's Babylon Zoo, not uh, whatever the other one was that went mad. It's three in about a week that went quite mad. But yeah. New Twitter king. Um, as always, you can follow us at AK90s on Twitter, at AK90s pod on Instagram. I will start posting more stuff on Instagram. I do neglect it way too much, but we are very much in the, the Twitter field here, which is, that's what we do. So do follow us on that. Rate, review, you know, give us all that gunk as usual on the uh, whatever podcast platform of choice that you use. We'll be back next time with more 90s chat here on Alive and Kick In. But until then, keep it 90s. <laughs>